I stopped doing drugs at 17. So that, to- that tells you what between 11 and 17 looked like. She was running the meeting and she was like, oh, hey, you know, are you new here? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, what brings you? And I honestly said, my therapist said I had to go to a meeting where she was going to break up with me. And she was like, oh, and I, I, just to be polite, I said to her, what brings you here? And she said, I killed a six-year-old boy in a drunk driving accident. You literally only live once. You are perfectly positioned right now in this exact moment to create the ultimate life of your dreams. Like, why are you waiting? Why are you numbing? When I learned that codependent love was really about control, it was so much easier to let the chips fall where they may, especially when they're not your friggin' chips. My name's Mimi Bouchard, founder of Superhuman, the transformational app that helps you become your future self so that you can finally start attracting more joy, abundance, health, wealth, and love into your life. And that's also my mission on this podcast. Meet people whose lives have been transformed in big and small ways, but always for the better. They tell me how they did it so that you can too. In today's incredible conversation with Boundary Boss Terry Cole, we go in on healthy boundaries, how to set them, and how to respect them. All right, Terry Cole, you are the Boundary Boss. You wrote a book literally called that. But when did you first suspect that maybe you had issues with boundaries? I didn't know that the issues I had were with boundaries, right? Until Mm -hmm. a bunch of years of therapy. I knew I had issues. So I was in relationships, but I would feel a lot of resentment and I would feel like I'd be over-functioning, over-giving, overdoing, having super porous boundaries, not knowing that's what it was. And so from my young perspective, because I was in my early 20s and not knowing anything about boundaries, because P.S., none of us do, I would see it as the other person. I'd be like, well, if my boyfriend wasn't so entitled or if my boss wasn't a jerk or this one. And really, of course, in therapy, it all came back around to, you know, the common denominator in every one of those experiences was me. And that's when I really started seeing that my disordered boundaries were making me not be honest in my relationships, that I was such a people pleaser, Mm -hmm. that I was so avoiding conflict, that I was, well, all the things. So- that that is basically when i had the realization of what it was but i was suffering from it long before i knew what i was suffering from right absolutely and i read somewhere that you said you were raised in a regular dysfunctioning family what did that look like <laughs> i let's see my parents were high school sweethearts my mother was a cheerleader my father was an incredible athlete went to college on a full ride but you know they were they both wanted to get out of the podunk towns upstate new york that they grew up in and so my father started his you know rise up the corporate ladder this is when people like had a job and then stayed there for like 35 years <laughs> remember when that happened that was long ago but that's how it was my father went straight to college my mother actually went to work at the ge factory because both of my parents grew up very poor so my my mother didn't have a scholarship so she had to work she worked for 2 years in the GE factory, I think in Glens Falls, New York, to save money to go to college at Oneonta. And then 
she got pregnant over Thanksgiving break her freshman year. What a bummer. And so they got married over Christmas break, and my mother quit college and started having kids and had four daughters. I'm the fourth in a in six years, I'd say. So keep in mind, my mother was 19 when she started having kids. My father is literally a father in college. Like we think about that today, you're like, what? How the hell are we at all normal? But anyway, so dysfunctional in the way that my father was a high functioning alcoholic not abusive, not just not there. You know, he, he worked, he was also such a workaholic, was very successful. He retired when he was 52, I think. Very successful. He never missed a day of work in 35 years like that, you know. But their relationship, there was no communication, really. They were like kids who didn't have the mm-hmm. skills. So what I learned from watching them was that I didn't want that right? Like in the way of love and marriage. I was like, that looks kind of not that great. It didn't look horrendous, right? My parents were very dutiful. And even though my father was emotionally absent and used alcohol to numb, you know, he was dutiful. He showed up, he paid for college, he, you know, fixed my teeth, bought me a used car. It's like, you know, like regular middle-class dutiful dad, I would say. But he was so emotionally not there, that I definitely thought I was born the wrong gender. I thought he really wanted a boy. I, I, I really had a chip on my shoulder of like something to prove that even though I was the youngest, I was considered what we call psychotherapeutically as like the designated oldest child, even mm-hmm. though I was chronologically the youngest child. So I had something to prove. I would, My mother's message to me was covertly and overtly, Make your own money, girl. Get an education so that maybe one day for you, love can be a choice and not a need. Wow. Wow. So you went to therapy young at 19 years old. Why and what was life like back then? I mean, I actually had a honestly a pretty happy childhood in the way of, you know, I, I knew what the dysfunction was sort of, but we just organized around it. We just like avoided my father. That That's basically what it was. My mother was super loving, very present, still alive today, still thinks I'm the best thing that ever happened to planet earth, not just our family, <laughs> to everyone in the world. I'm the best thing. So there's something about the the juxtaposition of having those experiences, right? Where there's one parent who is incredibly available you know, I, I can remember my earliest memories of my mother is her squatting all the way down when I'm like a little teeny kid being like, you don't, you don't want to wear that sweater. It's scratchy. You don't have to wear it. What you, you like that you want, like what my mother taught me was what I think, how I feel and what I want matters. Right. And that if someone loves me, it should matter to them. But then I had this other learning over here where my father couldn't be bothered is what it seemed like. He was not interested in us, right? He golfed, drank martinis on the weekend, worked all the time, and felt like his financial contribution was enough. So anyway, that that was a long way around the barn to actually answer your question, which is by the time I got into college, I was drinking a lot. So I started drinking young, so did my sisters. So, you know, I stopped doing drugs at 17. So that that tells you what between 11 and 17 looked like, but I was still drinking. And so I ended up going to therapy because 
something happened with, I, I went to college on Long Island and there was like a huge storm that, so we were out of school for like two weeks where it was just like, we had a deluge of snow and not having anything to do, right? Because forward motion, I was always a good student. I was always a cheerleader. I was always doing, doing, doing. I had lots of friends. I always had a boyfriend. And now suddenly there was all this downtime and I felt depressed for the first time in my life. I didn't even know what it was. It was like, why don't I have any energy? Like what the hell's going on? So I, I knew there was a counseling center at the school. And so I got into therapy at 19. And about two, a year and a half or two years into my relationship with that therapist, she was like, oh, hey, P.S., you're an alcoholic, <laughs> kind of. I mean, she's like, what you're describing is alcoholic behavior. And I literally said, who? She was like, you. I was utterly shocked. I was like, no way, man. I was like, if that's the case, every person in my life is a friggin' alcoholic. She was like, that may be true, but I'm not treating every person in your life. And if you don't go to a 12-step meeting, at least, if you don't check this out, if you don't do something about it, I will terminate wow. treatment. <laughs> wow. That sounds like you got a pretty good therapist right out the gate. <laughs> yeah, I really so, did. I mean, that was bold of her. Yeah. Very bold of her. How did that feel to be confronted about that? I mean, honestly, I was defensive at first, mm -hmm. but I remember driving back to campus because at that point, then she had her own practice. She was not working in the counseling center anymore. And I remember just feeling relieved where I was like, wow, okay. So if this is like the worst thing, let's just say right now, I got to deal with. Let me, I'm coachable. She says, go to a 12-step meeting. I'm going to do that. So I found a meeting in Sias at Long Island. I went to a friggin' church. And this was the 80s, baby. So you probably weren't even born yet. But keep in mind, <laughs> you can imagine everybody smoked. It was like I had I have curly hair. And for some reason, I had a friggin' perm. I don't even know why. This is what we did. So much makeup. We put shoulder pads in our T-shirts. Just saying, this was a style. <laughs> so picture what I look like, fully shellacked just in my stirrup pants going into this, this basement basically. And I sat really close to the door, A, so I could smoke my Parliament 100s, you know, considerately, but also not that I had to because every person in that joint was smoking, but I also didn't know anything about being in recovery. And I was like, what even is this thing? It's funny because I know so much, of course, about it now, a million years later. And so I wanted to be able to leave if it was like some weird ass cult or whatever. So this woman comes over to me and she's probably 10 years older than I am at that point. And similarly, she'll act. So I thought she looked amazing and she was running the meeting and she was like, oh, hey, you know, are you new here? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, well, what brings you? And I honestly said, my therapist said I had to go to a meeting where she was going to break up with me. And she was like, oh, and I, I just to be polite, I said to her, what brings you here? And she said, I killed a six-year-old boy in a drunk driving accident. Oh my goodness. How did that shift your perspective about how serious this is? Oh, it changed everything. I, first of all, I always, I still think of that woman as like the angel mm. who was generous enough to tell the truth about her story. So her story didn't have to be my story, mm. you know? So I held it together for the rest of that meeting, but I wanted to, I was shocked. Finally got into the car. I was bawling my friggin' face off. I was just hysterically crying. 
And I swear to God, Whitney Houston's The Greatest Love of All comes on, which makes me cry even more because it's all about self-love. But as I'm driving back to the campus, once I pulled it together enough to drive, I had this conversation with the powers that be, whatever, whatever it is. You know, it's like the universe, goddess, whatever. Basically being like, I really get it. It doesn't have to be me. Mm. That is not my story. I see this as the second chance that it is. And like, I could decide right now to change my life. And I did. And I stopped. That's when I stopped drinking. I think it was like 21, maybe. And you haven't had a drink since. Well, I mean, there was those long two weeks in 08 to see if I could drink. But yeah, I mean, basically, it's been all that time. (laughs) That's a story for another episode. (laughs) All right. Well, we won't get into that. But what was the first change that you noticed once you stopped drinking at 21? I lost 25 pounds in 30 days. I found my cheekbones. I was like, whose face is that? What? I could not believe how much time I spent and wasted drinking. I was suddenly so interested in everything, life, self-help, reading my ass off. But I always had an adventurous nature, but my adventures were all would all end up with getting wasted, right? Like I'd be like, let's go to the beach, but we'd go to the beach and drink. You know, it was college. I also noticed how I needed to build skills that I had been numbing my feelings and my my feelings around problems. And what happens is your your growth gets stunted around your ability to problem solve when you use drugs or alcohol to numb those feelings, right? Because now you don't have the feelings that would propel you to come up with a solution, to figure it out, to whatever, which is definitely why my therapist was like, you have to stop or we're never getting anywhere. And it's so funny, of course, then eventually in my own life, I became a therapist and I realized how I can't really have actively addicted clients because what ends up happening is your whole life as a therapist is just helping them put out fires. And they're like, why so many fires? And you're like, dude, you're the pyro. It's literally you are lighting these fires that we are now putting out. So there's no getting to the original injuries because you make your life so unmanageable that that's the only stuff you end up talking about in therapy. Was it your personal experience that inspired your leap into psychotherapy? It was, but it was a long way around the barn because I actually had a pretty robust career as a talent agent negotiating contracts for supermodels and celebrities before. And so I had the experience of, I was really, there was a parallel process because I was so into therapy and I was so into self-help and trying to learn how to meditate before I did successfully. Like I tried for a long time before I actually became a meditation teacher and put out CDs and all of that, which I've done. I just could not believe how much therapy changed my life, gave me the tools to change my own life and how the shift I would say is like, I used to sort of think like, hey, these are the cards like you're dealt in life. Make the best of your cards, you know? And therapy was like learning that you could be like, I don't like these cards. I don't like this deck. I don't like this game. Like I'm literally creating a brand new game. I don't know exactly how it's going to go, but it's not going to go the way it would have gone had I continued drinking. Because it would have been at least a decade of bullshit. Like there's no doubt. Like would I have... I don't I don't know what would have happened in my life. I imagine I would have eventually stopped on my own because I've I've always been a pretty ambitious person, 
But I imagine my personal life would have been a much bigger disaster if I'd gone on. So for me, therapy was this amazing resource. So I was actively climbing the corporate ladder in Hollywood, basically. But I was also, I mean, my therapy was like a job too, to me. My, my evolution, the process of learning, becoming self-reflective, caring about myself. And, be, you know, as Deepak would say, I ended up doing a lot of work with Deepak Chopra over the many years and finally learned to meditate through him and David G. that, you know, the highest form of your own evolution is basically becoming the observer without judgment. So it's like learning to look at yourself and be like, huh, that's interesting. Why did I just react that way? Or why is this so painful? Is this really about this person or this relationship? Or is this about something else? And in therapy, I learned, before I became a therapist, I learned how important it is to look for patterns in your own life, in your own relationships, and then connect the dots backwards to original injuries of like, oh, I'm replaying this pattern with unavailable men because I had an unavailable father. Hmm. What needs to happen so I can stop repeating this unsatisfying pattern? And that's what therapy was about. So by the time I got to the height of this career that everyone thought was like this fancy, you know, supermodels, this was the nineties. Now (laughs) people really, supermodels were like, the whole thing. Everyone was so into it. They went from being like, no one even cared about models to suddenly it was like, you know, there there was the whole, um, what's his name from Wham, the singer who died. Do you know? George Michael. Yes. Thank you. He was really into supermodels. But anyway, so th- this was an, a really, you know, a, a career that people thought I should be really super psyched to have. And they were like, this is amazing. And, you know, the healthier I got, the less satisfied I was. I was like, I'm too healthy for this shit show. Like, I literally cannot stay in this business. I kept trying to change the business. I remember after I'd actually become a therapist, but then I somehow get sucked back in because they just give you all the money in the world. And you're like, well, I'm getting married. Maybe I'll run the TV department at Ford Modeling Agency. It's only for two months, which of course turned into six months, but whatever. While I was there, I kept like torturing Katie Ford, who's Eileen Ford's daughter, who, you know, Eileen was the original one who created Ford Models. Anyway, and I'd be like, can we talk about the models apartment? Because the people who are supposed to be chaperoning them are drug addicts. I mean, like, I just would be like, can we stop calling the models girls, please? They're women. She's like, dude, do you really want to be in this industry? <laughs> like, you, pr-? and I was like, probably not. Like, I don't. Hence why I became a therapist. So I was kind of happy to get out of the industry, but it was a hard transformation to make because, you know, even within my family, you know, my father, who I was saying, you know, was distant from, but I had a lot in common with being ambitious, being successful. Like that was my way of relating to him. You know, I remember when I was telling him, Hey, I think I'm going to quit my job and go to grad school to become a therapist. He was like, sounds weird. (laughs) Literally. That was his feedback. (laughs) I was like, okay. I said, well, sounds weird to you exciting to me. And lucky for me, I don't need anything from you. So just support me in, he's like, no, no, I mean, I'll support you, of course. And it was once I took one course on abnormal psych, I was like, yeah, this is my jam. I cannot wait. 
And I actually continued running that agency remotely the entire time I was in grad school. Somehow, I don't even know how I did it, but I did. I don't even think they know I was in grad school, actually, but whatever. That was a lot of years ago, people. (laughs) Yeah, wow, that's that's incredible. And you wrote in your book, Boundary Boss, that you got a skin cancer diagnosis. And after you got this diagnosis, that you had to wake up and start doing your own deep work. Tell me a little bit about that diagnosis and how this was the catalyst to deeper work for you. It actually wasn't skin cancer. It was a different kind of cancer. In fact, it was two different kinds of cancer. It was thyroid cancer. And it was a deep wake-up call for life, for just, are you living your best life? Like As a young person, I was in my early 30s, to have something happen that could potentially impact your mortality there's just no fucking around. Like, like mm-hmm. there's no way to not, I, I think for me, it was a massive wake up call of what am I doing with my life? Is this what I want to be doing? And I was already in the process of changing. So when, when all of that happened, thank God. So I was already going through grad school. I was actually the end of grad school when I got diagnosed. And then I met my husband. All, this is all around the same time. But what the wake-up call did for me was it changed the way that I looked at myself, my body. I always had, like, I was one of the, you know, people who, and maybe you're one of these people, you're just gaining and losing the same fucking 20 pounds for, like, your entire life. You're just like, wow. So my going to the gym, I was always in good shape, but my going to the gym was all about, like, the size of my ass. And I have to say, being diagnosed with something and having to deal with the fact that not all the surgeons are the right surgeons for you and not all doctors. I had a really not great experience with the first surgery, had to have the same exact surgery done on the other side, had to have radiation treatment again. It was like, just a, it was just hell. But what I learned about myself, besides that I'm super resilient, which I already knew, is that this is again where boundaries come in. Boundaries with the medical community. Can't worry about what someone else is thinking if you have a question and you have a doctor who's like, basically shut up, which is what this surgeon hated me because I was way too, too many questions too. Yeah. And I also was educated. We'd done so much research and he was so mad. The first guy, I would never put up with that crap now in my life, but I was young and I didn't know how. Even though my boundaries were so much better by the time I was in my early thirties, this was so scary I had just fallen in love, never thought I wanted to get married. I finally meet a guy and I'm like, I, he had three kids. He was widowed. He lived in Jersey. <laughs> like nobody would have thought he was my perfect 10 years older than me. And I was like, oh my God, here you are. You're my person. And then within X number of months, like six months, I get diagnosed with cancer, which is what his wife died of. So this was so much more loaded than just having a cancer diagnosis for me. Now I'm madly in love with these three kids. They're in love with me. And now in their experience, women just leave or die. And now suddenly I get a cancer diagnosis. It was so, it was so much. And yet what, you know, we survived it. And what did it show me about my husband, who was only my friggin' boyfriend at the time, is that he was, he was my person. He was, went to every appointment with just, just the most. He still is 25 years later, the most. Like, how did I ever nail this guy? I have no idea, but. Wow. Goosebumps with that story. So. 
tell me a little bit about that experience. Is it gone fully now? Oh yeah. 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 I'm, I'm perfectly fine. I mean, for many years I had to go every six months and then you go every year and then you go mm-hmm. every five years. Yeah, no, I'm perfectly fine, but it changes the trajectory of your life. Mm-hmm. You will never have the innocence that you have before that experience of like, I was a vegetarian for years before that happened. I, you know, like I was, had been working out religiously for years. I was so mad. I was like, seriously, I'm getting cancer. I'm the healthiest mother ever on the planet. What do you mean? And then I felt like my body betrayed me. But as I worked through all of that, and of course I was still in therapy, I'm still in therapy right now. I really realized how like it made me look at my body differently. It made me look at my life. When you get something like that, you so understand that there is not one second of this journey that is guaranteed you. It is a gift, a privilege, an honor that you get to live another day. And I want anybody listening to take this as your own wake-up call because you know what? I took every experience in my life and I turned it into courses and books and things so that it doesn't have to be you. Just like that beautiful woman in the AA meeting shared something with me so that I didn't have to be the person in a vehicular homicide experience, you also don't have to have a cancer diagnosis to wake up Mm. in your life. You can say, wow, listening to Mimi's podcast on that day was the day that I did a power pivot towards the life or the relationship or the career or the health or the finances that I really wanted, that I woke up, I stopped numbing myself with Netflix or gummies or booze or whatever, and like I started step by step to change my life because there, there's nothing you can't do. That makes mm-hmm. sense. Meaning mm-hmm. you have the power to change your yeah. life. So on this topic, a lot of people might be feeling, probably are feeling incredibly inspired listening to this. Being in tune with our mortality is something that definitely triggers that aliveness and need and desire to live fully within all of us. And something I've noticed from personal experience, and I know everyone experiences this, is once you get that hit, of motivation, of inspiration, of, okay, things are changing. Oftentimes that fizzles and fades and then you get back to the old habits and back Mm. to the old way of being and living. What is your best advice for someone that struggles with being their past self, even past getting some sort of motivational hit like this? I think that the thing that changed my life the most perhaps is working hard to be in the present moment. So what that meant to me was having a dedicated meditation practice for the last 20 years, slowing down, putting your feet in the grass if you live somewhere where you can do that, realizing this time on earth is finite. If you are complaining about everything, stop. Find, if you're going to complain, you're going to then come up with a solution. Find what's right in your life right now. Train your mind because we have the negativity bias, which means we remember the negative crap five times more readily than the positive stuff. So we have to work. But what changed my life was a meditation practice. And I was the worst person in the world to meditate. 
So it's not like I was a natural born meditator. I was not. And if I can learn, you can learn. Go on. You know what I mean? Like you can do it. Yeah, you can do it. And I want to touch quickly on the fact that you just referenced numbing and numbing with Netflix, numbing with booze, numbing with whatever it is. And this is so prevalent, especially with my generation of social media. Everyone is so addicted to technology. And hey, including Mm -hmm. myself, I struggle with limiting screen time. It's a very easy vice to go to when you're feeling overwhelmed, when you're procrastinating, when you're just wanting to be stimulated. What is some good advice from you when it comes to actually just changing habits and stopping doing some of these numbing activities? Well, part of it is make it hard. Make rules around technology. Put your phone far away from you. If you're if you're sitting with your person or you're sitting alone, you're watching TV, you don't need to also be online. You don't need to be on social media. So put your phone somewhere else. I have a basket at the front door of my house. And when my nieces come over, they hate it. I don't even care. I'm like, put it in. Because you know what, dude? I don't need to look at the top of your head while you're <laughs> on Instagram. They're like, I'm listening. I'm like, no, no, you're not. Because my time is valuable. And you're going to listen with your eyes and your ears or we're not talking. Like, that's my two cents on it. And we can be gentle with ourselves. And I'm gentle with them too. Like I'm sounding all tough here, but they understand. I'm like, listen, I love you. You can be on Instagram for the next seven hours when you get home, but you don't always get to spend time with me. And I want us to be off devices. That's it. That's coming into my house. That's what it is. For yourself though, move your phone far away so that you're only doing one thing. Because mm-hmm. listen, there's nothing wrong with winding down with Netflix. Let's not have it be binging 44 episodes in a day and doing nothing else, right? Mm-hmm. The, I think the the phone thing is really, really important. Do not eat dinner with any other human being with phones at the table, ever. I don't. And, and listen, if my friend has a babysitter, sure, of course, that's normal. But if I'm sitting there with my husband and he were to pick up, and, unless he's like, hey, I wanted to show you something or something happened or let's see what the weather is, that's different than just tuning out. It's like what happens, and I see this in my therapy practice, is that experiences that should have a deep imprint on us will have a less deep imprint because we're not fully in any experience. So it's like life light, I call it. Mm. It's not great. It's not great for intimacy. So how do you do it? First of all, you have to want to change more than you want to numb. Oh, that's so good. You want to, you need to want it badly enough. You do. That Yes. Mic drop. That's it. It's, it's not complicated. We try to overcomplicate things that we avoid it. And the reality is that the more we numb, the less motivated and disciplined we are. Right. So it's this constant vicious cycle. Yep. And it's exhausting, but it's bad for your brain. It's bad for everything. And we know this. There's so much science. Like, this is not news to anybody listening to this. But you have to decide, right, what are you going to do with this one and only beautiful, exquisite, amazing gift of a life? Because not everyone gets to live. People get sick. They die young. It happens all the time. They would do anything 
to do something with the time that you're scrolling on Instagram. So maybe just shifting the frame with which we see our lives, the lens that we're looking through, and look through the lens of gratitude. Even the hard stuff is something we get to do, or we get to kill time until we die, right? Because that's what we're doing, focusing on social media, the shit that doesn't matter, the people that don't matter, the people we don't even friggin' know in real life, while we let our relationship with our grandparents just evaporate. We're like, they're fine. They'll always, No, they will not always be there. Your parents will not always be there. Your siblings, your friends. There will be people that you will regret not putting in the effort with because you were doing something else that isn't for you. And listen, this is not about shaming you. It really isn't. I hope it is a wake-up call because we've all been socialized, especially this younger generation. Now, it's different for my generation, even though I see friends of mine and people I know just as addicted as the younger generations with no with no boundaries, you know, but then I also, people who are close to me, most of my friends, we all have a similar view because we were not raised with cell phones. We were not raised. I didn't have cell phones until I was in my late 20s or early 30s, 30s, I think. So my whole life was like, you're meeting up with friends. I hope they show up. If not, let's go to the payphone and <laughs> call their house and see when they left. Like, like there was not the instant gratification there was not the endless 24-7 stimuli. Our best ideas came out of being bored. I don't think kids, teenagers, or people in their 20s today have been bored ever. Mm-mm. Right? Mm-mm. There's all this, these memes online now with a woman talking about Generation X and about how it's like the last feral, feral generation where you grew up, your parents were like, it's summer. Go outside. Bye. See you at six. Like there was no, there was no like concierge making plans, giving a shit what you were doing, caring. My mother was like, ride your 10 speed. I had to go to summer school one year. I was a sophomore. I rode my bike like probably five miles on major <laughs> roadways with my friend Grimsby on the back because her parents were equally not involved and she didn't even have a friggin' bike. Like that would never happen today. It was so dangerous, first of all. And the school knew we were doing it and they didn't give a crap either. So part of it is, I'm not like saying like, oh, the good old days, don't you wish you were driving five miles to summer school? No, you probably don't wish you had to do that. But the adventurous spirit and the ability in my life, nobody was doing something for me. I graduated college. My parents were like, good luck. We hope you make it. Like nobody was like, let's maybe we'll secure you an apartment. What? No, it was like, get it together. I was grateful my father paid for college and I didn't have to work through college. A lot of my friends did have to work. So I think that back to the original point of this whole conversation, looking at where are you wasting your one and only precious life? What are you not going for? What do you want to do? What is your heart's desire, really, if you weren't so worried about what other people would think about you? What other people think about you is none of your friggin' business. Forget it. And trust me, if you do anything big in life, there's always going to be haters. The more visible you are, the more of them there'll be. Who cares? Do your dharma, your purpose in life. Add value. Look at something that only you can do. You know? It's like what your parents want you to do, what someone else wants you to do. 
that's not your life, right? Your life is what you want to do. Like, how did you come to be doing this at such a young age? Okay, tell me if this sounds like you. After a beautiful long day of eating healthy foods at night, you cannot kick this chocolate craving. This is me pretty much every night. And when I have this craving, I do not ignore it. I definitely bask in it. And my favorite healthy way to enjoy something chocolatey in the evenings actually has a benefit for my sleep. And I'm gonna tell you what this product is. Organifi's chocolate gold drink. It is basically an adult hot chocolate. It is full of adaptogens. It barely has any sugar. It's low calorie. It tastes pretty darn incredible and very, very close to the real thing. You know those hot chocolate packets you got as a kid with the little fake marshmallows? It kind of tastes like that. And it has so many incredible adaptogenic ingredients in there that are proven to help you sleep and wind down. So it's kind of a win-win. I get to wind down and have my little chocolate kick and I'm going to give you a pro hack here with the Organifi chocolate gold drink put some hot water in there and then add a big dash of some sort of like oat milk or plant milk that you have or even real milk if you roll that way no judgment here but just enjoy it because it literally brings you back to real hot chocolate and it just tastes so darn good. And every single ingredient on that list is so good for you. There's no gross filler stuff. Organifi is one of those brands that just really values quality and I love that. That's what I like to put in my body. So if you would like to get 20% off and try Organifi's chocolate gold drink and any of their other products, head to Organifi.com forward slash Mimi and get 20 20% off your entire order if you use the code Mimi at checkout. That is Organifi, O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com forward slash Mimi and take advantage of the 20% off offer that they are offering all of my listeners. Pop in Mimi at checkout and you'll get that big discount on anything from their website, including sale items. They also offer a money back guarantee. So go check it out and let's get back to today's episode. Well, for everyone listening, I did go on Terry's podcast a few weeks ago, <laughs> but you know, it, it was from a personal need as well. When I think back and listen, I'm so not as wise as you at all. I am very much so at the beginning of my journey, but it was a personal, it all started from what, what I experienced in my life. I was feeling like I was not being the person that I was meant to be. My intuition started kicking in. I really started feeling really off and weird about being this old version of myself that was not authentic, that did not love herself, that was not doing the things she wanted to do because she was scared what people would think about her. And I just started changing things. But with all that being said, I'm still trying to figure out a lot and I'm still definitely going through my own personal discoveries and evolutions all the time. And yeah, I'm, I'm constantly trying to improve. But when I get back to that feeling of being the true Mimi and the authentic mm -hmm. Mimi, it's, it's exactly what we're talking about in this conversation. It's like, you literally only live once. You are perfectly positioned right now in this exact moment to create the ultimate life of your dreams. Like, why are you waiting? Why are you numbing? Why are you not out there like grabbing life by the balls? <laughs> Excuse my yeah. French. And mm -hmm. like going and getting it, like this excitement towards life, this aliveness, like that's my why. And mm -hmm. when I forget that, because I do often, you know, I'm again, 
really like, you know, very preoccupied with so many things in my life. And when I get distracted and overwhelmed, I tend to go to those negative habits, like numbing on social media. I'm running a business. It's way bigger than me. And it's Mm -hmm. been a very, very challenging, exciting, crazy moment in my life, but it's been taking up most of my freaking time. So I've been putting aside, I used to have all the time in the world for my personal development. Now it's like the next challenge. And then one day when, you know, I have children, maybe the next challenge, or there's always going to be that next step. But just to kind of wrap up that answer to you, it's for me, it just started from like just a deep force within me. I just couldn't not try this type of life out. Like I really needed to just satisfy this urge inside of me essentially to start living a bit bigger. It's that's a beautiful answer and hopefully in in yeah I imagine inspiring to people listening because there is this this thing that's this dissatisfaction like pain is the thing as human beings that is the driver for us and so it's looking at what are you in pain about? Where where are you dissatisfied? And a lot of times, this is the whole thing with where mental health and healthy boundaries and not being codependent and all of these things comes into creating a life that you want is that you end up, as I was saying before, creating all of these distraction problems, right? When we don't get our mental health shit together, we are, it's called repetition compulsion. I call it repeating relationship realities or repeating boundary realities where you may end up in being like, how am I in another relationship with the person like this? How am I unhappy again? Why is it great for two months and then it just stops being great and then it ends or whatever your pattern is that isn't satisfying to you. And it's like, instead of just forging ahead, what therapy teaches you to do is self-reflect, is understand patterns, is understand your history, is look at yourself with compassion, but also be radically curious about why you are the way you are, because all of us are the way we are for very, really good reasons, right? There's not something wrong with you. Like there was nothing wrong with me. I was repeating what I learned and what I saw. It's like modeled behavior, but there's ways to not do that. And some people will just do that for the rest of their lives and be like, there's no good people out there to have relationships with. So uh, my, my picker is broken. I always pick the wrong person. It's mm-hmm. like, no, just understand your downloaded blueprint around mm-hmm. love, around boundaries, around finances, around everything. And you can change it. Like it's mm-hmm. absolutely possible to but I feel like to do something big in our lives, we need to free up all of this mental bandwidth by getting emotionally and psychologically healthy. Right. I have a whole section here I want to dive into called Boundaries 101. But before I do, a question just popped into my mind. And I really want to ask you because you have such wisdom about you. And obviously, you've been through so much in your life. And as a young woman, I'd love to just ask you, how do you stop caring about what other people think of you? Just high level. It's something that so many of us in my generation deal with. And they always say when you get older, you know, you realize no one was ever thinking about you in the first place. You don't even give a crap anymore. Like, how do you actually get to that point earlier on in your life? Because it does waste so much time and it causes so much unnecessary anxiety. Mm -hmm. It's a great question. 
first you have to have a good relationship with yourself. You have to look at what is your internal dialogue like? What do you th- what is your self-identity? What do you think about you? Right? We need to build a loving, supportive, compassionate relationship with ourselves and with the children within us. Like we all have like kids within us, right? We all got injured at different ages of development. This is just life on planet Earth. But we need to, because a lot of times we're reacting. Where if we're feeling activated or triggered by something, a lot of times it's coming from those childhood injuries that, and they don't have to be like trauma with a capital T to still impact us negatively. So the first thing in getting to caring less, and and here's the thing, I don't think the goal is to care less about what everyone thinks. It's about be discerning about whose opinion you give a shit about, right? As Brene Brown talks about, if you've got the people on the sidelines sitting on their ass eating bonbons, they're not in the arena, they got no blood on their face, they're not doing, they got no stake in the ground, no skin in the game, not putting themselves out there, then you really need to not give any bucks about what that person thinks because they're not your person, right? They're not your people. Mm-hmm. So I'm super discerning about whose opinion I seek. And I may lo- I have lots of friends I love. I'm not asking their opinion on shit because I don't, I'm not. I don't want to know. I don't care. Right. So I don't let people, there's no auto advice giving in my life. Like, but I feel like, again, here's boundaries where a lot of times we don't know how to stop people from auto advice giving. And maybe we're auto advice giving to people, but there's something really, to me, I think it's very demeaning when someone, Everyone in the world feels like they can say to you, well, I don't think you should do that. Mm-hmm. Well, I don't remember asking you, so bye. Worry about your own life. Like, but, I, but I teach, you know, super simple, very loving ways to say, oh, hey, I'm actually not, I'm not open for input right now. I'm not seeking input. Mm-hmm. I'm figuring this in my life. I'm figuring it out. And I love that you're concerned and I appreciate that. And it really means something to me that you care. So thank you. It really just stems from this self-confidence. That's what I'm hearing. Just yes. the self-assuredness, this very, very strong, powerful, dominant, self-assured feeling. Yes, but you get that from knowing yourself, from also becoming an expert at whatever it is that you're doing. Mm. Actually do the work. I'm not insecure about what I know about being a therapist and the books I'm writing because I've been doing it for 25 years. I've been in the trenches with my clients for that long. So I know that I have a unique perspective. I'm not saying I'm better than anyone else. I'm just saying I'm solid in myself, Mm. who I am, what I want. And just like I learned from my mother when I was a little kid, I have no doubt what I think, how I feel, and what I want matters. And if you're going to be in my life, that shit also has to matter to you. And so I think that this is a place to start is for people to look and say, do I, do I act in my life like how I feel, what I think, and what I want matters? Because, you know, Mimi, it's not enough for it to just matter. It has to matter to you more than what anyone else wants, thinks, and feels. So that's not to say we don't compromise in long-term relationships and families, and of course we do. 
but literally it has to be more important to you, what you think, what you want and what you feel. And we've been trained that that's bad. We've been trained to be self, you know, what do I say? We're raised and praised to be self-abandoning codependence. And that's what we have to heal from, you know? Mm. All right. Switching gears, I'd love to do a little boundaries 101 with you. Sure. First of all, what defines a good boundary? Well, let's just talk about what they are. I want you to think about your boundaries as your own personal rules of engagement, right? Letting people know what's okay with you, what's not okay with you. Your boundaries are made up of your preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers, like your non-negotiables. And it's not enough to just know those things. You need to know them and have the ability to communicate them. So that's what boundaries are, right? There isn't like a good boundary. There is, this is a skill set. Learning, becoming fluent in the language of boundaries is like becoming fluent in any language, right? In the beginning, so if you don't know how to do this, don't feel bad. You wouldn't feel bad that you weren't fluent in Japanese if nobody ever taught you, but you would also know, huh, I need a book. I need a teacher. I need something. So a good boundary is one that's based on your preferences, desires, limits, and deal breakers. This, this is what it's based on. It's not about controlling other people. It's about us controlling what happens in our own life, our own experience. Can you break down the types of boundaries there are? Physical, sure. material, all that kind sure. of stuff? We have physical, which also is, I'd say kind of sexual can be tucked in under that. Because think about it, your body. This is your biggest boundary, basically. Mm-hmm. And this is about, do you give a handshake? Do you like to hug people? What are you comfortable with? What are you comfortable sexually with? Uh, violation in this area? Is someone kind of st- a close talker? You know, people like that or were too close to you. And you're like, you'll step backwards once. And then you just got to say, hey, Bob, you're standing too close for my comfort. Please back up. You just have to tell the person with sexual boundaries, a violation could look like someone making a lewd comment about your body. That could be a sexual boundary violation. Then we have mental, which is what you think, your opinions, knowing what that is, being able to hold on to what you think, even when you're with people who don't agree with what you think. So that's having healthy mental boundaries, but you have to know yourself, you know, and this is, listen, in your twenties and stuff, come on. I don't think I knew myself till I was 40. I mean, like it, you can't expect you, you know, to be a a total expert on you when you're still so young, right? It takes time, but there's a lot of growth that can happen in these areas in your twenties and thirties. Anyway, then we have emotional boundaries, which is basically not feeling responsible for other people's feelings. It's knowing what is your side of the street emotionally? What are you responsible for? And what is someone else? It's not guilting people for the way that you feel. And it's not being vulnerable to being guilted by others. Those are emotional boundary violations. Or also someone saying, if you say, I'm upset about this, and they say, that's ridiculous. You have no reason to feel that way. That's an emotional boundary violation, which of course, to that you could say, oh, wait, I was just telling you how I feel. I wasn't asking you for your opinion or your judgment on my feelings. So let's Mm -hmm. just stick to what I was talking about, which was my feelings. All right, right, moving on. Then you have material boundaries. How do you relate to your stuff? 
How do you relate to, do you keep a clean car? Do you want other people to not leave their crap in your car? Do people have to take their shoes off in your house? Do you let other people sleep in your bed? Do you share your clothes with people, your food with people? So material boundaries is really all about how, what are our boundaries we have with our stuff? And did I hit them all? I think I did. Emotional, mental. Yeah. Okay. But then let's talk about the, within the categories, then you have the types. So porous, which means too loose, your boundaries. Rigid, which means too hard, and then healthy, which is kind of right in the middle. So if someone has porous boundaries, and I actually think I'll give you a link for people to take this. It's actually a 13-question quiz, which will tell you what your archetype is. Boundaryquiz.com. Boundary Okay, I want to do that after this call. Yeah, you do. I'll learn about mine. You could be a peacekeeper. You could be a pushover. You could be a chameleon. You could be an ice queen. So people have the misunderstanding around boundaries that if someone is really a boundary boss, they actually think that it's like my way or the highway. Oh, she's got good boundaries. That's not true. If someone is like my way or the highway, they have rigid boundaries. Mm. So it's really important to understand those nuances and the difference. Because with someone who has rigid boundaries, if you hurt their feelings, they're more likely to ghost you than they are to tell you. They'll be withdrawn in anger. They'll torture you. They won't go back to you for like weeks mm. to show you how upset they are, but they won't oh. tell you. Yeah. Yeah. We all know okay. someone like that for sure. Yeah, we do. Yeah. We're all related to someone like that. <laughs> <laughs> Why does boundary setting feel so awful and uncomfortable at first? Well, look at the way we were raised. We were raised to be good girls. Turn that frown around. Where's my happy girl? If you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all, right? What did we learn? What did you learn, people listening, and you, Mimi, growing up? Give your shirt off your back. People will talk about someone and say like, oh my God, she's amazing. You'll love her. She'd give anyone the shirt off her back. I'm like, "Uh, Betty, keep your effing shirt on. Why? Why is that to be celebrated? And yet, The more self-sacrificing, as women, the better, the more feminine, quote unquote, right? Mm -hmm. You're the giver. You're the the earth mama. You're the one who everyone can come to. You would give you the shirt off your back to anyone, and that is a good thing. It's not. So therefore, we're not even coming to boundary setting from an even playing field. We're coming from a total deficit of having all, we have to unlearn all of this crap around what it means to be a woman, what it means to be feminine, that telling the truth about how we feel, because this is what we're talking about. When you assert a preference to someone, that is a boundary. You are letting them know, hey, I would like to eat this kind of food tonight. That doesn't mean that the person's always going to be like, okay, whatever you want. That's not what we're looking for, because your preferences, your desires, your limits and your deal breakers, they don't just make up your boundaries. They are also the things that make you uniquely you. So when we don't assert our preferences, our limits, our desires, and our deal breakers, we are not letting the people in our lives know who we are. We're giving them corrupted data. And then we're like, why do I feel existentially lonely in this relationship? Because the person doesn't actually know you because you've been people-pleasing, because you've been confusing compliance with compatibility. Mm. 
Mm. And they're not the same. How can we make it easier to move through that awkward stage? Because obviously it gets easier with time, setting boundaries. But it gets easier with repetition. And you need to learn how to do it. I teach you in the book. I teach you in my courses and my masterminds and all the things I do. It's a step-by-step process. We do the first three weeks in my Boundary Bootcamp course, or the first four weeks, actually. We do a deep dive in because you have to have a deep understanding of why you are the way you are. And I know we all want to get to the point of like, how do we change it? I could give you all the perfect words. Perfect. I have a whole chapter in the book in Boundary Boss that are literally just scripts, an entire chapter for every situation you could ever find yourself in. But if you don't do the internal work, those words won't help you because you won't be able to consistently do it because the stuff inside is going to drive you back to old behavior. So we really have to go, what I call, we go into the basement of your mind, which is your unconscious mind. And we have a deeper understanding of what is your boundary blueprint, which is different than my boundary blueprint. The way that I was raised, family of origin, country, culture, society, all of that. And then what's your natural personality? Are you an introvert? Are you an extrovert? All of these things impact how easy or difficult it is for you to set boundaries, but you have to take a minute to be guided through that process. Then it's so much easier to, because I also give you the words, you can always start it with, hey, I'd like to make a simple request that if you're going to be more than 10 minutes late, you let me know. Mm -hmm. Right? Like Mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be all aggro. It really doesn't. It can be really simple, but I want to make this really important point of the whole macro of why this matters. And I want people listening to get that our boundary requests and our deal breakers and our limits and all the things, those are not to control other people per se, right? They are for us to protect ourselves, protect our relationships. And it's not about like, it's not about what the other person does. Sometimes they'll acquiesce to what you want. Maybe sometimes they won't. Maybe they'll get mad. Maybe they'll feel rejected. We don't know. But your healing is in the asking. Your healing is in having the courage to assert your preferences, desires, limits, and deal breakers. That's what will change you. It's not that they do it or don't. That's all data for you to look at. Are you in a relationship with someone who's not willing to compromise, who only liked you when they could run over your boundaries and do everything their way? Well, maybe you'll have a decision to make. But it's still good for you, your self-esteem. You want to talk about how to build self-esteem? Tell the truth about your preferences, your desires, your limits, and your deal breakers. It will change your life and how you relate to yourself because you're such a baller. Like doing it makes you feel so seen, even if the other person doesn't do what you want or doesn't like it or wants you to go back to the way you were. You know the truth about who you are. And if you're wearing a mask in your relationship, sooner or later, that shit is going to come off. Mm. Oh, wow. You're amazing. You don't have to wear a mask. You don't have to wear a mask. (laughs) Seriously, this is such a great conversation. 
I want to move it to to this question here. So people throw around the term codependency a lot. What does that have to do with boundaries? And I know you speak on this. Mm-hmm. Everything. When you look at what codependency is, I'll just give you my definition of it so it's easier. It's being overly invested in the feeling states, the outcomes, the relationships, the circumstances of the people in your life to the detriment of your internal peace. Okay? So think about that. We're overly involved. We're overly worried. We feel overly responsible for how other people feel to the detriment that we're not sleeping because we're thinking about our friend. We're, not, we're worried about this one getting fired because they called in sick to work because they were hungover and we, we lie for them. We, we get involved. We feel like that person's problem is my problem. And the reason why I added to the detriment of your internal peace is because we're all lovers. Of course, we're invested in the happiness of our people, right? That's normal. Being overly invested is what codependency is. Codependency, the foundation of codependency, codependent relationships are disordered boundaries. So that's that's how, right? Because to be codependent, inherent in that is disordered boundaries. Why does it matter? Because first of all, it's all about control, which people never make this association with codependency, but it is. It's a covert or overt bid, desire to control other people's outcomes. We're so worried about their life that looks like a disaster to us. We're so worried that they're going to make a mistake. We're terrified of making our own mistakes too, but we're so worried about them that we're going to save them. We're going to give them the money. We're going to lend the money. We're going to, but what we're doing is we're inserting ourselves into the center of their problem as like the solution. And when I got that in therapy, that that's what I was doing in my life, it was so humbling. I was like, wow, how can presumptuous is that? That I actually think I know what everyone else should be doing. Like, keep your eyes on your own paper tear. But, you know, it, it's the way that you're raised. It's growing up in a family system with codependency. It's, you know, it's very prevalent. Mm. But when I learned that codependent love was really about control, it was so much easier to let the chips fall where they may, especially when they're not your friggin' chips. You can still be a loving friend. Instead of making a suggestion, say, what do you think you should do? What does your gut instinct say? Because I trust your gut. You have a good gut. If you did know the answer, what would it be? So what do you, what, how do you feel now? Like we think we're on the hook to have the answers. How about just ask expansive questions and have faith that you definitely don't know what your friend should be doing more than your friend does. You don't. And even if they don't know, what my therapist said to me many years ago when I was trying to save, save quote unquote, one of my sisters in this terrible situation living in a house in the woods with a crack at it, like it was a whole thing that was terrible. Abuse, drugs, alcohol. And I was like, what am I going to do? I was crying. I was always talking about it in therapy, trying to throw money at it, do whatever. And she was like, Terry, what makes you think you know? What lessons Evie needs to learn in this lifetime? Wow. And I was like, I mean, I think we can agree it doesn't have to be like in a house without running water in the woods with a crackhead. And she was like, no, I don't know. I don't know what lessons she needs to learn. 
but do you know what's really going on here? And I was like, clearly, I have no idea, so help. And she said, you've worked all these years to create a pretty harmonious life, and your sister's dumpster fire of a life is really fucking with your peace, basically, and you really want it to stop. (laughs) I was like, oh my God, that's so true. She's like, you want to tie it up in a bow because it's so distressing to you. I was like, and she's like, but you can't. It's not even possible. I was like, so what can I do? She's like, boundaries. And this, I was young at this point. I was like, wait, what? (laughs) What do you mean? She's like, so anyway, I ended up having a conversation with my sister saying, hey, I cannot talk to you about this guy. I love you. I can't talk to you about this chaotic situation that you're in. But if you ever want to get out, I'm still your person. I'm always your person if you really want to get out. Nine months later, she called me. Hello, are you still my person? I was like, yes, I am. I'm getting in my car. She left him, got sober, got back into school. She stayed in this little lake house that we had for like two years rent free so we could we could help her in an appropriate way. But in the end of the end, it was my sister who was the hero of her own story, not me. And that required me tolerating my feelings about her being in that situation because it wasn't my situation to control. Right. You know? Yeah, absolutely. All right. I've had you here for an hour now. I'd love to jump into our quick fire round boundary edition. I'm going to throw you some tricky situations. I would love for you to respond with a basic script that someone could use in one of these situations. Go. Let's start with a common one. How do you say no to something you do not want to go to? For example, a second cousin's baby shower or a friend's art opening. Mm -hmm. When they ask you, if they ask you, let's just say they're asking you, Mm -hmm. you don't, you don't have to say no immediately. You're going to buy time. You're going to say, I actually don't know what I'm doing on that day. So I'm going to check my calendar, check with my partner and I'll get back to you. So here's the thing. Just don't give an Insta yes. Mm. Cause that's really hard to undo. Just give a maybe give a, I need to check. I don't know. And then you're going to come back with a no. So when you have to come back with a no, here's the thing. Hey, I try, we actually have something else we're doing on that day. I'm so sorry. I can't make it. I hope you guys have an amazing time. Right. You can always start with sweetness too. You can say, thank you so much for thinking of me. And I'm unavailable on that day. Have a great time. Don't feel like you need to write a dissertation on why. Mm-hmm. If it's your second cousin twice, you might be like, why? What are you doing? You can just say, we already have plans. We're already committed to something else. What if you do not have to explain? Yeah. What if you didn't want to lie? What if you just didn't, you know, if you wanted just to tell them, I don't want to go, is that. But why, but why, why would you want to do that? There's no good reason to do that. Yeah. I guess you don't, right. you don't want to be friends with your second cousin. Then, then, then <laughs> say that because there's no reason. How yeah, about I have an idea? Make another plan. So yeah. then you're not lying. Yeah. Make a plan. Your husband, you, you and your partner, you're going to go to have lunch at a town next door. We have plans that they're now you told the truth. Cause here's the thing with this radical honesty stuff. It's not necessary. We live in a civilized society. Why would you ever tell your second cousin? You know what? I literally don't give a shit about you or your baby. Like why? You, you, there's no need. But you also don't need to spend four hours in an afternoon going to something you don't care about. So you can absolutely bow out gracefully and yeah. you don't owe them a big, long explanation. You yeah. know? You're so right. 
All right, your constantly late friend is late again. What do you say to them? I wonder if you've said anything before to them. Like if this is the scenario where you're it's just the kind first of pissy. time. They're always late and you yep. want to say something to them. Yep. You're going to say, hey, I have to make a simple request. Next time we meet, if you're going to be more than two minutes late, five minutes late, you got to text me because I took a cab up here to be on time and I could easily have walked the 20 blocks. I could have got my steps in. We could have both gotten here at the same time, but you didn't let me know. So, because here's the thing with people who are late, you can try to make them be on time, but that's going to be challenging because they got challenges. The real thing we want from those people is to be precise about when you're going to arrive so we can plan accordingly. Don't make me wait in a public place for 20 minutes like an idiot. So that would be your script. All right. You have a sibling that you love who spouts a lot of opinions that you don't really agree with. A lot of people are dealing with this right now. (laughs) How do you navigate around that kind of conversation at the next big family gathering and still maintain a good relationship with them? I'm super into having topics that are a no-go at family gatherings. So if I'm there and someone is wanting to be like, I want to know your opinion on what's happening politically, mm-hmm. I would say, oh, no, no politics, no religion. No, I'm a, we're on vacation right now. I actually went through this with my extended family during the pandemic lockdown, vaccine, anti-vaxxing, all that crap. And I would just, one of my uncles was so provocative, trying to get me into it all the time. And I would just say, I would just make it a joke and be like, literally no possible way you could ever get me to have that conversation with you. So no. Oh, cause you don't, whatever. Yep. That's right. I don't correct. So part of it is just saying no, just really be, being honest and saying, Hey, this is a hot button topic for lots of people. I love you guys, and I really don't want to talk about it. We're not going to solve this here. What I care about is protecting our relationship. Yeah. Because I didn't want to know what my extended family thought. I was like, the more I know, the less I like them. So let me not get into that conversation. Mm. All right. So uh, what's the best way to end a toxic or even draining friendship that has run its course? Part of it is really look at your behavior because you're probably at least 50% of what's keeping it going out of obligation, out of guilt, out of fear. So let's first start by having boundaries in our behavior. Let's stop initiating contact with that toxic friend. If you know what I mean? Because so much of the time when people come to me with this problem, this is so common. I'll be like, but are you reaching out to them? Are you inviting them to things? And they're like, well, yeah, because I feel obligated. I'm like, okay, stop. So let's let our behavior be aligned with how we feel. Don't get back to them immediately. Energetically. I I love to also put people on what I call an energetic hit list, where if there are people that would like to be further away from me in life, I put them on the hit list. I I do this exercise where you visualize them in in a pink balloon, breathe in 11 times. Every time I'm exhaling, they're going further and further away over the horizon. It's like a cord cutting thing. I'm not hurting anyone. But I'm telling you, when I change what's in my energetic field, it changes what happens. That might sound weird, just saying. You could have an energetic hit list, put them on there. And then it depends on if you feel like you need to have a conversation or not. If you feel like you need an explanation, I don't feel that you have to do it in person. Some people will disagree. I always thought that was so dumb. I was like, listen, 
you have a toxic relationship with someone who drinks too much, let's say. So you're telling me you think that I should go out to dinner with them to break up with them? Why the hell would I do that? That makes zero sense. You can do it by email. You could do it by voice note. There's going to be no good way to do it. They're going to be mad if they don't want the friendship to end. So no matter how you do it, you're going to be criticized. So my feeling is do it however you can. You know what I mean? So you actually will. And what can you say? Hey, listen, I've been thinking about the last argument we had and realized that for the past couple of years, we seem to be at odds more than we seem to get along. And I honestly feel like this friendship has run its course for me. I wish you the very best, but I no longer want to continue on in this friendship. Yeah. Just to the point. Yeah. All right. Next scenario. A coworker has told you their salary without prompting and asks you for the same information and you feel uncomfortable telling them. What do you do? I think you can say, oh yeah, no. I know you just shared, but I I do not talk about that. The only person who knows my salary is my boss and my accountant or something like that. Like you can either keep it light and if they ask, you can just say, I'm, I'm really not comfortable talking about that. And if they get mad, they get mad. Like, here's the thing. Conversational boundaries are so important because nothing is more important than you not giving up information to people that you don't want to. Right. So when you have the intrusive questions, why aren't you married? Where's the person that you brought last year to this thing? Oh, I heard you were pregnant. Did you have a miscarriage? Like people will say the most effed up things. They don't care. And you have to be, don't be taken off guard when Mm -hmm. someone is asking you intrusive questions. Be prepared. You can say, I love this response, um, Kasha Urbaniak, where she says, you flip it. So you question the questioner's question. And you simply say, why would you ask me that? Yes. Yes. I love that. Why would you ask me that? Reverting it to them. It's that's so powerful. I also read once that if someone says a snide comment that makes like that that's obviously not very nice, simply even just responding by saying, Sorry, what did you say? Can you repeat that? And getting them to repeat <laughs> and then they they say, Oh, never mind. It's you know, so that's a, yep. another pro tip. I love that. Do you have a few more minutes? I have a few more sure. that I'd love to go through. Okay, great. I would love to move over to sex and boundaries because this is so important, especially with, you know, us young women. If, if we are, you know, out on the town and meeting a lot of new men, not that I'm doing that, but it's a very important mm-hmm. topic. So what is a non-mood killing way to set boundaries if you're about to have sex with someone? Well, if you're about to have sex with them, what boundary do you want to draw? You want them to use a condom? Do you like, you know what I mean? All right, you're making out with them, you're into it, and then you're suddenly not really wanting to take it that Got far. Got it. I understand. Well, first of all, use your body language. So first of all, put a full hand up to say, hey, you know what? I need to slow it down. I need to slow it down. And maneuver yourself so you're physically away. Like get, get a little bit more of a distance away, hopefully, if the person is a decent person and has control of themselves, they'll say, okay, no problem, right? And then you can talk and whatever. Like, don't do what you do not want to do. Mm. I like the idea of being clear for yourself about how you feel about being sexual soon. 
I know it's a younger generation. I know it's different. I'm not prudish about sex at all. But I always found that if people were looking for a long-term relationship, that waiting a bit is helpful because it tells you whether the person is invested just to get laid or not. I mean, I had an eight-date rule when I started dating my husband, eight dates. I told him straight to his face. I was like, that's it. I have an eight-date rule. He was like, great. (laughs) He's like, how quickly can we get to that? And trust me, it happened within three weeks. But still, the bottom line was it can be playful. It can be flirty. It can be, for me, I was not interested. Because here's the thing. You never regret not having sex. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And you definitely can regret having it. Yeah. You definitely can, unless you're you're out to have sex, and there's nothing wrong with that. It's all about what is in your mind. Yeah. I just find that once you get sexual, it complicates the shit out of the relationship, and now we're worried about ulterior motives. So I like the idea of talking about it ahead of time and saying, listen, maybe eight dates is too much now for people, maybe four dates, maybe, but but setting an expectation so that you can enjoy your time. And also just don't make a plan to go back to anyone's house if that's not what you want to do, right? right? Because if it's a first date, if you're drinking, if you go back to someone's house, there, there will be, I know we can say no at any point, but I'm saying for protection purposes, be mindful, Mm -hmm. you know, of what, how vulnerable are you making yourself and with whom, you know, be, be discerning. Mm -hmm. Your new partner insists on knowing how many people that you've slept with. They're open with you about their number, even though you didn't ask, but you don't want to share yours. What do you say? Exactly that. You can say, you can literally say, hey, you spontaneously shared. We did not have an agreement and I don't feel comfortable. Yeah, it's that simple, huh? It's really just, you know, all of these questions, it's coming back to the same thing. It's saying in a kind and open, loving way this is not what I'm comfortable with. So no, sorry. Right. That's not my preference or that here's my limit. Mm. And, and for that person, maybe that's a deal breaker for them. That's okay. How they respond to your boundary, you'll have to deal with it, but it's, that's not about you. That's about them. And they have every right to have a reaction to it. Maybe they're like, all right, forget it. I want to go out with you. Then, oh, Okay. Well, then I guess you don't, then they don't accept you. They don't accept that you have a right to your privacy, you know? Mm-hmm. And maybe that means you don't really want to be with someone like that, you know? Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, Terry, this has been an absolutely incredible episode. I'm so excited for everyone to hear it. I have one final question for you. Sure. I like to ask some of my guests or most of my guests who their future self is. So we use this term with on my podcast and my app, your ultimate self. It's kind of synonymous with your best self, your future self. We kind of use it all together. Mm-hmm. And we like to make it real by having a clear image of what that is, of who our ultimate self is. Who is Terry's ultimate future self? I think in my ultimate future self, I'm traveling around the world, speaking, doing conferences. The books I've put out have helped zillions of people because that's my dharma. That's what I care about. That's what I want to do. But I'm traveling with my family. I've got time. I see my future self because I've worked a lot in the past 30 years having more time, and it'll be a grind for the next couple of years still, but having time to just travel and be helping, being able to be of service in a greater way and 
just enjoying life with my husband on my little crackpot farm with my chickens and my geese and my grandbabies. Beautiful. That's such a nice answer. And last but not least, where can everyone find you, your book? Everything's going to be in the show notes, but just as an audio reminder. All right. Well, first of all, don't forget to do the boundary quiz. Yes. It's literally boundaryquiz.com. You can find me at terrycole.com. I also am on Instagram most of the time. I have my own podcast, which Mimi is on, which is coming out in a couple of months, The Terry Cole Show. I've got a bunch of actually boundary workshops coming up. If anyone's interested, you can find it on my website, terrycole.com. Beautiful. All right. Well, I have the boundary quiz on my computer right now. I can't wait to go do it. So excited. Terry, this was such (laughs) a fun episode. Thank you so much again for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. Did you know if you leave a rating or review on this podcast, the algorithm is going to target you with more content that you enjoy. So take advantage of the beautiful algorithm. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, leave us a rating or review on our podcast. Thank you so much. And we'll see you next time.